If you've ever seen a three-dimensional printer in action, it's kind of amazing. Bit by bit, materials are transformed into what seems like could be an infinite number of shapes. The possibilities seem endless. But the reality of it is that each 3D printing technology has a ton of constraints. On this episode of the American Scientist Podcast, an interview with Ryan Sokul, an engineer at the University of Maryland, whose team has overcome a major constraint, size. Sokul and his team have been able to 3D print materials at the size of capillaries, so small that red blood cells have to travel through them in single file. I'm Robert Frederick. There are a lot of reasons to create models of the structures in the human body, not the least of which is testing pharmaceuticals on cells. This is the idea of a lab on a chip, or an organ on a chip, and then testing how those cells react to things. And the more realistic the labs on the chip, the thinking goes the more that the cells being tested outside the body will react like they would if they were inside the body. But creating the tiniest structures of the body has been a challenge. Think of the lining of your gut and how it absorbs food, or the tiny structures in your kidney that filter blood. These are the kinds of tiny structures that Ryan Sokul and his colleagues are working to model physically with three-dimensional printing. We spoke by Skype. Here's an excerpt of our interview. So there is a ton of hype surrounding 3D printing is the colloquial term, but additive manufacturing is uh, the scientific term. But when it comes to 3D printing, initially when I first heard about it, it sounded like it was this magic technology that could just do anything. You could print anything with any material, uh, anywhere. But the reality of it is that each 3D printing technology has a ton of constraints associated with a number of different aspects. And so the particular technology that interests me is called two-photon direct laser writing. Before we get to that, typically we think of 3D printing as extruding things, right? The pin that writes in plastic or something like that. What's the limits of those techniques in terms of making things that are really, really small? So yeah, so I think when most people hear the term 3D printing, there's like this picture of a nozzle and there's plastic coming out of it. And you're basically putting the plastic on a plate and you're just moving it point by point and layer by layer, layer building up some type of 3D object. That is one type of 3D printing. It's very well known because it's very, very, very inexpensive to make that type of 3D printer. So basically, if you can get a material through a nozzle and it'll maintain its form after it's been deposited, you can print with that. But there's a tremendous trade-off in terms of the resolution. So because you have to physically be there point by point to lay it down, the material, that makes it an incredibly time-intensive process overall but especially so if you're working at smaller scales. So now tell me about this direct laser writing that you were talking about. So the way that that works 
is basically that you're using a special type of, of liquid that it stays a liquid unless it gets hit with a type of light. And so what you do is you use light and you position that light and you can scan it so that it scans into the liquid and wherever the light touches, it hardens the material. And afterwards you get rid of the liquid and the only thing that remains is the hardened object. And that was actually the first type of 3D printing that was ever developed in the early 80s, actually. So does that mean you could wash in a different liquid and then continue the device in a separate material? So we currently do that, but the original, once you've built a structure, you can't go back to that layer. It's, it's kind of over. So these are fluids though, too. So how do you stabilize it? How do you make something useful in a fluid like that? So what's special about it is it's only a fluid until you hit it with a laser. But as soon as it gets hit with a laser, it solidifies. And so it's almost like if you had a glass of water and you were basically, and the water is just normal water, but you had a special laser that wherever you spun it, wherever you put it inside, it would turn it into ice, but only in those locations. So afterwards you would get rid of the water and wherever you had moved your laser, you now have an ice sculpture that's solidified. But those first few icicles, I guess those first few ice cubes are still gonna float around though, right? Yes, typically you do have to attach them to something. So the first ones that you make, you would definitely want to attach them to the bottom of the glass. So everything would have to be attached to the bottom of the glass in that analogy. And that analogy holds for what you're doing? It absolutely holds. And what's special about the process that I use is it's basically a, a micro or nanoscale version. And so whatever you used to be able to make at the millimeter or the centimeter scale, we can produce it with the resolution of roughly 100 nanometers, which is roughly one one thousandth of the size of a human hair. And that's going to help the folks who are doing... It has a number of applications. I would say so far, the major applications have been more in the optics to build special lenses and things like that, as well as in photonics to be able to bend light in certain ways and control light in certain ways. But our interest has always been in using it for trying to accurately recreate the architecture of the types of, of components inside of our organs in our body. And so that is really a challenging manufacturing question. How do we build something that is so complex? Because when you think about a Petri dish, a Petri dish looks nothing like the human body. There is no part of our body that has a gigantic flat surface with one cell type and one fluid that is functionally static, that's completely irrelevant to our body. But that happens to be the standard right now in terms of, of cellular testing and drug testing and things like that. So what are the limitations right now on, on the technology as it is and what you're working with? So the major limitation that we attacked this past year was the issue that basically, let's say that you're trying to make vasculature just like you have in the body, but microvasculature at a very, very small scale that's accurate to maybe parts of the kidney. And so we can print something like that, which is a great first step. But if you can't deliver fluids to the inside of it, if you can't put cells inside, then it's worthless. What's the point of having something that looks right if you can never interact with it? 
And what's keeping the interaction from happening? So the problem is that it would take you so much time to build something that large because it's not designed to build things on the millimeter to centimeter scale. It's designed to build things that are smaller than 100 microns. And so as a result, there's just no way to interface with it. It's really difficult. And so that's what we attacked, was coming up with a way where we would make a larger microfluidic device, and then we would print the structures we needed directly inside of the device so that you only print what you absolutely need, and you can still connect the fluid to it to be able to deliver biofluids or cells directly into your components. So back in 2018, you submitted your work on this method, this in-situ direct laser writing to create nanostructured devices inside of and sealed to other microfluidic devices. And that was published in January, earlier this year. And then a little later this year, you had improved on the process. How so? So that's kind of its own process of just not being limited to just one material at a time, which is one of the major limitations historically of direct laser writing, is it's very difficult to have multiple materials. So if I were to compare works, I would say that our work in January, we tried with one material to do this, and we were successful, but it wasn't as great as we were hoping. So Imagine you wanted to load two different types of cells into two different types of vasculature right next to each other, but you didn't want them to interact directly. You didn't want any cross-contamination. Our initial version in January was good, but not great. We couldn't fully guarantee that there wouldn't be some cross-contamination. And so we switched to a different material in the most recent publication, So up to the published present this summer, 2019, with the research paper having it in the title, the cyclic olefin polymer-based in-situ direct laser writing. We've been talking about in-situ direct laser writing and a number of different materials. So what was it about this particular material, the cyclic olefin polymer, that you said, okay, we got to go forward with this? So basically it was a change from something that's more like a a silicone rubber that wasn't really bonding that well when you printed right next to it, right on top of it, it was still not really bonding that well. However, this the cyclic olefone polymer, that's more of a thermoplastic. And so it's actually able to, we, we think what's happening is it melts just a little bit to form a really strong bond with the parts that we're printing inside. We basically increased the pressure as much as our building allows, and it was able to hold everything. The pressure being how much uh, pressure from the fluid itself is exerted on the structure that's built? Yes, so basically what we did was we built just just flat straight walls in the channel and just tried to hit it with as much fluidic pressure as possible and just kept increasing. Typically, by about uh, 100 kilopascals, everything had exploded. Sometimes those walls would just like fly away, different reactions like that. But with the cyclic olefin polymer, there was nothing like that. You could keep increasing the pressure, and there was nothing happening to these walls, no matter the size. 10 microns, 100 microns, they were all surviving 
regardless of the pressures we were able to input. Are there other advantages to this this particular polymer, or is it going to be something that is a, a detractor that it has this strength, uh, you know, not being permeable to gas or other things, perhaps? So it it depends. I would say that for sure, the other polymer that we were using, polydimethylsiloxane or PDMS, that's arguably the most popular microfluidics material of all time. And so we really wanted to have at least one process out there that was, I guess, related to that type of material. So if people absolutely have to use PDMS, here is an approach that, that one could use. But in general, most of the methods are, are almost identical. Certainly PDMS is more well characterized, but sometimes that's a negative. So there are a lot of situations in which PDMS can be toxic to living cells. It can be considered a non-ideal type of material for certain biological applications. And so there is certainly prior interest in different types of thermoplastics. And so that kind of it wasn't that it came out of nowhere. There's a significant amount of research in the literature of these types of materials, specifically for biological applications. Are you directly partnering with researchers who are wanting to employ this microfluidics technology? Their needs are informing your team's research? My expertise, my area of expertise is really in, in additive manufacturing. And so it's incredibly critical that I partner with people who are experts in the biological spaces that are related to these technologies. So for example, we partner with William Bentley. There's a new Institute for Biomedical Devices on campus, but he's the leader for that. And working with Dr. Bentley's group, his researchers are using the approaches that I mentioned to model the human gut. So that's the organ that he's particularly interested in. And so we figured out ways to kind of adapt our process to meet the challenges of modeling the human gut. And similarly, we've had experiences where basically we show this technology and people say, I had no idea that that was possible. Let's start working together. And so recently we started working with some researchers at the VA hospital in DC who are interested in using this to model parts of the human kidney. And then we also use these kind of approaches particularly with the FDA, who want to try to create what are called phantoms, which is basically just a physical structure that's meant to mimic parts of the human eye, the human retina. And so uh, there's been a lot of interest in, in researchers in this area so far, once they see what we're able to do. And now that the papers are finally published, we're able to kind of share it with people well outside of like our local community. This seems still like a, a very fast developing technology. So what's next on this research path for you and your team? So there are a couple of things that we're very interested in, but one of the things that you'll note from our prior publications is that everything is non-biological. There's nothing living inside of these components. So we have different types of fluids and we have different types of fluidic circuits that we're demonstrating as a proof of concept, but our end goal is to create living systems with these, systems in which we are loading in different types of cells and using this to, to learn more about how they interact. So how do diseases propagate in the human body? How do different types of biological reactions happen? Is there a potential to use these types of systems for drug discovery or for drug development? Those are all kind of major questions of, of next steps. 
So moving away from systems that have nothing biological to trying to really make sure that we can adapt our process to make them happy environments for living cells and tissues. Ryan Sokol, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Ryan Sokol is an engineer at the University of Maryland whose team has 3D printed structures the size of capillaries, micrometers in size. In the November-December 2019 issue of American Scientist magazine, you can see a highly magnified picture of one of these structures in the article titled, Micro-Sized Architecture, or find it online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.